Shorty here. I love the song by Duran Duran, Ordinary World. I mean, it just, oh, just hits me right in the heart. But I won't cry for yesterday. There's an ordinary world somehow I have to find. As I try to make my way to the ordinary world, I will learn to survive. Now, if you haven't lived much of your life like I have, kind of on the outskirts of polite society, all right, it may not mean anything to you, this song. But for me, it means there's outskirts of, there's an ordinary world out there, right, that, that I, I've yet to find, but I can find. And so it's just incredible being on this low five milligram dose of, of Adderall, how it restores the possibility of an ordinary life, an ordinary world, a, a normal life. I mean, I was lectured throughout my life to pay attention. What's wrong with you? Why can't you pay attention? I was lectured about my verbal impetuosity. Like, why do you always say the, the wrong thing? I, I can't take you anywhere. You're just totally inappropriate. And so I received religious exhortation, spiritual exhortation, social exhortation, uh, work exhortation, educational exhortation. I could never pay attention in, in school. In, in social gatherings, I was like way too needy for attention. I just couldn't stand the humdrum. I remember James DiGiorgio, the famed director and, and stand-up comic, he, he said to me, you're just, you're just always looking to create drama, all right? I just want to create an ordinary life. But that world was always, that ordinary world was possible for me. It was just out there, just, just where the Adderall is, right? If only I'd been diagnosed as a kid. Right? I was always a crummy student all through school, and I was obviously smart, but I was a crummy school, so that ordinary world. And uh, wow, Donald Trump, he, he probably wishes that he'd just get an ordinary go. Washington Post headline, Trump disqualified from Colorado's 2024 primary ballot by state Supreme Court. Decision is certain to be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, but it will be up to the justices to decide whether to take the case. So the people who support this kind of decision disqualifying Donald Trump from the Colorado ballot, these are the same people who can plain that our democracy is under threat. But what they mean by our democracy is protection for institutions that are dominated by the left. So the idea that people could get to vote for their preferred candidate, such as Donald Trump, right, that's not democracy because Donald Trump failed our institutions. Right? That's the, the reigning liberal left mainstream media consensus. Donald Trump failed our institutions. So remember Colonel Vindman? who launched the first impeachment of Donald Trump because he said Donald Trump was failing to follow United States foreign policy of providing substantial military aid to Ukraine, which once it was delivered to Ukraine, right, incentivized Vladimir Putin to launch a war. And the, the big point here is that this idea that U.S. foreign policy is something you know, above and beyond and completely separate from Donald Trump that he needs to live up to. In reality, it's up to the president of the United States to set foreign policy. Right? That's his, his bailiwick. Right? The foreign policy is not something that the United States president needs to conform to. Foreign policy is something that needs to conform to the directives of the United States president. But the U.S. military repeatedly defeated Donald Trump. He wanted to pull all of our troops out of Syria, and the U.S. military prevented him. Right? Why the heck? Do we have military bases in Syria against the will of the Syrian government? Can you imagine China or Russia or Japan like establishing military bases in the United States against the will of our country? Can you just feel how, how outrageous that would be that some foreign power with a different religion, different ethnicity establishes you know, military bases in your nation, state? I mean, it's outrageous to think that we have military bases in Syria and uh, hearing all the time in the news about attacks on U.S. military bases in the Middle East. Well, why the heck do we have so many military bases in the Middle East? And why the heck wasn't I diagnosed with ADHD before now? So I, I so identify with all these people that I'm meeting in, in adult life who experienced that life just was completely transformed by one weird trick, taking Doctor prescribed methamphetamine, All right? Adderall is methamphetamine, but uh, when judiciously and appropriately used for people with ADHD, it's absolutely life-changing, all right? My verbal impetuosity is about one 10% of what it normally is. My ability to pay attention to mundane details is three, four, five, six times 
what, what it normally is. My need to be constantly in, in, in the drama, right, is about 10% of what it normally is. My, my need to act out and seize attention is considerably diminished. All right, there's an ordinary world that I'm just starting to enter at age 57, all right, because I finally, finally heard pleas from people close to me say, go, you know, go get checked out for ADHD. And it turns out, damn, I do have ADHD. And then I've had various people over the course of my life tell me you're never going to have normal health unless you learn to eat meat. Well, finally, a little over two years ago, I started taking beef organ capsules and the weakness that had troubled me all my life. Just that one weird trick, taking beef organ capsules and the weakness that had, you know, imperiled and diminished my life just disappeared. I spent thousands of dollars dealing with plantar fasciitis, all right? And then I found one weird trick in the New York Times, a very simple exercise, started doing it on a daily basis, and uh, my plantar fasciitis problem went away, right? I could have saved thousands of dollars if I just learned this one weird trick to deal with plantar fasciitis, right? I was having some, like, left elbow problems, and so I went to my activator and the textbook I have for the activator and found it, like, where, where to use the activator and the appropriate line of drive, went to the te- textbook for the, for the chiropractors who use, who use uh, yeah, ask your doctor if meth is right for you. And I just spent about 10, 15 minutes last two mornings, all right? And, you know, my, my shoulder problem is just whew, uh, 70% uh, diminished. You know, thanks to the old trusty activator. All right, this activator, along with the $150 guidebook, which I got as an ebook, all right, has saved me, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in physical therapy. So yeah, I finally learned that one one weird trick. Number one, uh, get checked out for ADHD if you have trouble paying attention to details, if you suffer from verbal impetuosity. Probably uh, practically, pragmatically, behaviorally, significantly reduce my narcissistic uh, tendencies. I'm much able, much better able to pay attention to, to mundane details of life, which were just tripping me up constantly and costing me tens of thousands of dollars in my in my carelessness. Uh, I remember this one sex addiction therapist told me every single sex addict that she counseled and her her practice was solely sex addict. Every single one of them had ADHD. Now, not for for sex addicts, you get checked out, diagnosed, and medicated for ADHD is not necessarily going to reduce your sex addiction, but it'll get you a long way down the road, right? So I would say a substantial number of debtors, uh, people who are chronic under-owners, people who just constantly seeking drama, that their life could be considerably improved by getting checked out for ADHD and, if appropriate, getting medicated. And then what about the fat people? All right, now there's Ozampic where they can just get a shot, all right, and uh, they can start losing significant amounts of weight and start living their ideal life at an ideal body weight. So how many of us with ADHD or with the wrong, you know, vegetarian diet, or who are obese, all right? Uh, you know, being lectured morally, spiritually, socially, culturally, educationally, uh, medically, physiologically, lectured that we need to do this and that, all right? When there's just one weird trick, whether it's Ozampic injections or getting uh, medicated for ADHD or adding some beef organ capsules to your life, like one weird trick, right? Just learning to use the activator. Right, can just completely transform your life, save you tens of thousands of dollars, and restore that ordinary world that other people enjoy. And and so I'm not going to cry for yesterday. Right, there's an ordinary world out there somehow. I have to find as I try to make my way to the ordinary world. I will, I will learn to survive. Thank you, Duran Duran. So I've been loving this song for for three decades now. And this song was holding out the promise for me that there was an ordinary world out there that I had yet to find. And Doug Garnett, beef organ capsules, ADHD medication, the activator, that one weird trick for plantar fasciitis. And, and here I am. I stand before you this day. All right, John J. Mearsheimer says there's no two-state solution. He's interviewed on Unheard four days ago. of Hamas deliberately putting centers of operations in civilian centers, under hospitals, etc. How do you respond to that? Does that not complicate the idea that they, they could have done a surgical strike that avoided any civilian casualties? Well, there's no question that Hamas is integrated in all sorts of ways into the civilian population in Gaza. How could it be? Okay, so this is a completely different perspective than I've heard otherwise. All right, the, the perspective that I've always heard 
is that Hamas deliberately embeds its many of its military targets in hospitals, in kindergartens, in schools, in civilian centers. And Mearsheimer is essentially saying the opposite of what we've all heard, simply saying that how could it do otherwise? It's not that, uh, it's not that uh, Hamas is deliberately trying to embed within kindergartens and schools and hospitals. It's just how could it do otherwise? All right, this is completely different than anything else I- I've heard. Count me a tad skeptical of Mishima's perspective here. Otherwise, I mean, Hamas is not going to build military bases far away from the civilian population so that they present the Israelis with a big fat target. What they have done is they have built tunnels underneath. Oh, okay. So they do deliberately embed in civilian populations to try to increase civilian casualties. The ground all over Gaza, which is a way of protecting themselves. So the latest news is over 20,000 Gazan casualties, but this comes from an organization that is controlled by Hamas. So how credible is it? Mishima says that the Israelis are massacring Gazan civilians, but why would Israel send out hundreds of thousands, millions of text messages and and faxes and uh, leaflets to try to direct uh, the civilians in Gaza to places where they are at considerably less risk of dying? All right. I've never seen or heard of a massacre where the people who are purportedly carrying out the massacre are going to such extreme lengths that that no other country goes to to try to reduce civilian casualties. From Israeli bombing campaigns. Uh, It makes perfect sense from their point of view. But in doing that, there's no way they're not going to be bound up with the local population. And are you saying you don't think it's a deliberate strategy then? You think it's just an accident of the small geographical area? You, You don't think Hamas are deliberately putting centers of strategic importance in the middle of civilian centers? I don't see much evidence of that. I mean, the Israelis, you know, made the case that this one hospital uh, was a, a site of a major uh, command and control post for. Okay, so that's completely different than everything else I've heard. Mishima says he sees no evidence that Hamas is deliberately embedding itself in civilian facilities. Right. So either Mishima is right, and everybody else on this topic is wrong that I've heard, or Mishima is wrong and. The, the consensus is right. I, I'm not an expert. Moss and underneath was the sort of center of a huge network of tunnels. But once they got into the hospital and checked around, they did not find any significant evidence that supported that thesis. I thought they did uh, find tunnels directly from the floor of the hospital. I don't remember that being the case. Uh, I, I mean, there's so many stories on what they found in this hospital or that hospital or in the surrounding area near the hospital. So it's interesting. Mishimer has made a moral cry uh, of outrage at Israel's treatment of Gazans. And I can't remember him doing this. Can you remember him doing this on any other occasion? Where else has he posted an, an essay of moral outrage, right? He's known as a realist. He's, he's known as someone who doesn't uh, primarily view the world in moral terms. He, he views, you know, great power politics primarily in terms of, of power. So, why is the Israel-Palestine conflict completely different for him? Now, maybe he has written those essays, but I am pretty familiar of John Mearsheimer's work, and I can't recall any other essay of, of moral outrage that, that he has published. And where are the examples of nations that have been massacred, right, akin to what Israel suffered on October 7? All right, so December 7, all right, uh, United States lost about 2,000 people in the attack by, by Japan. And in revenge, the United States killed millions of Japanese. Like, who else has suffered a massacre of over 1,000 of its civilians completely unexpectedly by, by an enemy that deliberately targets civilians and has reacted in a more restrained way than Israel? Mishimer hasn't named any of those examples. Like, who else reacts to a massacre of over a thousand of its citizens in a more restrained fashion than Israel. There, there may be many, many such examples. I just can't think of them. A hospital that it's hard to keep track of it, but uh, there's no evidence that uh, Hamas had a major headquarters and the center of a major um, series of tunnels underneath any one hospital. What I'm really keen to hear is, is what the correct application of your principles of international relations would be to this situation. This is great. This is this was my question. And then Mishima comes back with an answer that I hadn't thought of. 
but it's an important situation. One. So if you accept Israel as a as a state and as a, an actor that will act in its own self interests, and then you also you know observe the situation in the countries around it and in the uh, in Gaza and in the West Bank, how does this play out? Is it just a simple case of one side needs to win and the other side needs to lose, or do you believe that a two state solution is actually a realistic possibility? I don't believe a two state solution is a realistic possibility. Uh, certainly, after what happened on October seventh and what has subsequently happened, uh, there's not going to be a two state solution. What the Israelis are determined to do is create a greater Israel, and that greater Israel includes Gaza, the West Bank, and what we used to call Green Line Israel, Israel as it existed before. I think we all want to create a greater us, right? We all invest ourselves in things around us and we just keep expanding. We invest into cars, into real estate, into our favorite sports teams, into clubs, into religious allegiances, political allegiances, where every living thing tries to create an environment around it that is most conducive to its thriving and flourishing. And we tend to invest in, in people and in groups, in, in things around us right? And we, we naturally tend to expand. So what, what Israel wants to do is what pretty much every living thing wants to do, create an optimum environment for it to thrive in. Before the 1967 war. And the problem that the Israelis face is that there are approximately 7.3 million Israeli Jews in greater Israel. And there are approximately 7.3 million uh, Palestinians inside of greater Israel. And that creates huge problems for Israel. Uh, because they can't have a meaningful democracy when they're probably uh, slightly more Palestinians than Israeli Jews. And uh, they're unwilling, the Israeli government is unwilling to go to a two-state solution, uh, regardless of what happened on October 7th. But certainly after October 7th, that's not going to happen. So the end result... So, but just is to the, confirm, and to, to, I know the current Netanyahu government is not in favor of that, but you don't think it's realistic anyway, a two-state solution. So if, if you're Israel, you wouldn't advise pursuing a two-state solution because you don't think it's feasible because of the nature of the antipathy that people in Gaza and the West Bank feel towards Israelis. Is that your position then? I have long been a proponent of a two-state solution, but I have long argued that it was no longer a viable alternative because I thought the Israelis were not interested uh, after uh, uh, Camp David in 2000 in a two-state solution. But now, I think after what's happened, uh, it's almost impossible to conceive of Israel uh, creating a Palestinian state uh, that is right next door uh, to Israel. Would you say that it's also impossible to conceive, having witnessed the events of October 7th, of a Palestinian state sitting peacefully side by side with an Israeli state? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think given what's happened on October 7th, relations between the Palestinians and the Israelis, you know, we're talking about both sides here, that's what you're getting, have been poisoned to the point where a two-state solution is no longer viable. So what should our goal be, Professor? We're, we're here to try to uh, work out what, what the world should be doing in that region. If the two-state solution you've supported for so long, you no longer think is realistic or viable, what's the plan? What should we be trying to do there? I have no solution. I think what you're going to end up with is uh, more of the same, which is a greater Israel that is an apartheid state. So rather than it being specifically a critique of, of Israel's overreaction, it's, it's more a sense that there is no solution here. We're, what we're witnessing is, is something that is just going to, going to carry on. These are two separate issues here. The substack piece that you... Yeah, if there, there's no solution, it, it would make sense that uh, Israel would put a priority on its own survival and its own flourishing. You started with piece that focuses just on Israel's policy in Gaza and is a critique of its behavior on moral grounds. And the question of what happens with regard to relations between Israeli Jews and Palestinians is another matter. And on that front, uh, I don't see any viable solution because in theory, there is only one viable solution, which is to give the Palestinians a state of their own. This crisis or this conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians can only be solved politically. It can't be solved with military force. And the political solution, theoretically, that works, the only political solution that works, theoretically, is a two-state solution. But as you and I discussed a few minutes ago, uh, that train has left the station. So we're going to continue the status quo, which is a greater Israel that is an apartheid state. And I know it's controversial to refer to Israel as an apartheid state, but Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, etc. Okay, so here's one of the books that I recommend. It's very useful for understanding the Arab-Israeli conflict and what's going on with uh, Jews and college campuses. Betrayals, all right, the unpredictability of human relations. I, I keep referring to this because betrayal is the hyperbolic word that we use when other people behave differently than what we expected, all right? This is the best book I've ever read on betrayal, all right? Uh, here's, here's a quote. With betrayal, we are faced with the greatest tragedy of human relations, the fact that the other is unknowable. Right? I think I know Glib Medley. I think I know Elliot Blatt. 
I think I know Laponius Maximus, but do I really know them? Right? Every interaction arises and grows around sharing something with another person. The birth of a we. All right. I have a I, thou, we relationship with Elliot and with Glib, but with what we're building here, at every everything that we do that brings us together contains within it the possibility of betrayal, separation, and, and rupture. Betrayal, dramatic or banal, always lies in wait for us. All right. You cannot start forming any connection, any relationship without the possibility of betrayal just lurking, right? In every interaction, parts of ourselves that we were unaware of come to light. Betrayal is always relational, right? Meaning if you have relationships, right? Betrayal is always possible, right? It's always to do with relationships and it's always possible. So I just finished reading this first biography of Milton Friedman called The Last Conservative. By, by Jennifer Burns. And she writes about Milton Friedman's relationship with his mentor, Arthur F. Burns, right? Two Jewish immigrants to the United States, all right? Both uh, Republicans. Arthur Burns became head of the Federal Reserve under Richard Nixon. And uh, Milton Friedman, who became about the most influential and famous economist in the United States in the 1960s, uh, was shocked because he opened the newspaper one May evening in something like 1969-70. He saw unbelievable headlines. Wage guide urged by Burns in break with Nixon policy. As for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal had Burns backs use of wage price program of some sort to bolster inflation fight. All the major newspapers covered the story. So their friendship essentially dissolved over the economic philosophy and, and policy of monetarism, whether... The growth of the money supply is the only or primary source of inflation. Right? Milton Friedman held that inflation came from excessive growth in the money supply. His famous sentence, inflation is always a, a monetary phenomenon. But because his mentor, uh, Arthur Burns, did not agree, all right, and Milton Friedman was willfully naive uh, about this, but uh, Arthur Burns wanted to use you know, government sanctioned wage and price controls to try to control inflation. And Milton Friedman thought, oh, it's no, that's absolute nonsense. So this was a policy disagreement. But for Milton Friedman, this Arthur Burns policy was a profound rupture in his emotional universe. Right? So you may like different football teams, or you may think you and your friend share a similar liking of a song, of a religion, of, of a politics, of a poem. Right, but when you find out that uh, there's a significant difference between you and your friend about a song, a poem, or economic policy, it will very likely feel like a profound rupture in your emotional universe. It depends how important that poem, that song, that sporting allegiance, that uh, political allegiance, that that religious teaching is to you. All right, if it's really teaching, if that teaching is incredibly important to you, if that sporting allegiance is incredibly important to you, that poem or that song is incredibly important to you. All right, then you're, you're confronted with something that's just going to tear you apart. Like, how can you maintain that same friendship, right, when about the, the most important things you differ? So Milton Friedman could not sleep because Arthur Burns had a different perspective on inflation. And he got up out of bed, poured out his anguish in long letters to Arthur Burns. And he wrote to him that the income policy speech had left him sleepless, sad, and dismayed and dis depressed. All right. He's writing this passionate letter to the head of the Federal Reserve. And I know we've all done it. We've all woken up in the middle of the night and written passionate letters to the head of the Federal Reserve. It's a very natural thing to do. So Milton writes, though I know this is not fair or right or generous, the word that keeps coming up to my mind is betrayed. Right? Because Arthur Burns has a different perspective on the causes of inflation and how to deal with inflation and wanted to use government price and wage controls rather than controlling the, the monetary supply, Milton Friedman, right, the most famous advocate for monetarism, that uh, the growth of the money supply is the primary cause of inflation, he feels betrayed. So how could Arthur Burns, who has repeated again and again and again his stance against wage and price controls, make such a reversal? Because when the situation changes, we often change too. This Milton Friedman letter attacks between incredulity and loss. Never in my wildest dreams did I believe the central bank virus was so potent that it could corrupt even you in so short a time, Milton Friedman might. Like it's a wonder, right, that uh, Elliot Blatt and I maintained our strong friendship 
despite different perspectives on vaccines and the coronavirus. And uh, Milton says, maybe there is a case to be made for incomes policy, but he could not simply imagine what it was. Income policy in any shape or form is bad economics. It's the entering wedge for still worse economics. It would obscure the real progress recently made in slowing inflation. Now, Arthur Burns was a disastrous head of the Federal Reserve. He reigned for about eight years, and the average inflation rate during that time was 7%. Income policy, if inflation goes down, would get the credit that belonged to monetary restraint. This incomes policy verges, in my mind, says Friedman, on the dishonest in spreading lies to the public. It's simply not true that inflation is produced by unions. Rather, it's produced only in Washington, only by the Federal Reserve, only by misguided monetary policy. Even Arthur Burns has said as much in the past. Well, when situations and your position in the world changes, all right, your perspectives often change. So Friedman only called the policy dishonest, but the implication essentially was that Arthur Burns was dishonest. So... Even Milton Friedman grasped that his letter was melodramatic rather than cold and logical. Just imagine being this, this passionate and emotional about the money supply. But his letters to Arthur Burns had always resembled diary entries because Arthur Burns was his mentor. Never before had he dissembled or masked his feelings. It was obvious to all who knew him that Milton Friedman loved being the smartest guy in the room. It's also clear he loved to smash idols, Peugeot, Keynes, Paul Samuelson, his whole life. Names others worshipped were Milton Friedman's targets. But underneath all this, imperceptibly running through the years, was a contrapuntal desire for a wise man, a counselor, a superior, someone to admire and esteem, just like, I guess, Dennis Prager for me. Right? This, this story resonates with me. I, I've experienced something similar with Dennis Prager. So Arthur Burns arriving in the fatherless Milton Friedman's life, just as he considered his professional future and played this role for decades. Arthur, there remains no one whom I so admire, feel so close to, Rose, his wife, accepted. And so I, I hate to hurt, Milton Friedman told him in his closing lines. So when Milton Friedman was, I think, in India uh, giving lectures and studying economics, his wife, all right, they had a home in Chicago. Someone broke into their home and raped his wife. And Rose, his wife, you know, uh, sent him a... Uh, a, t a text message. What was that called? A a, a telex. Uh, but she she had you know she wasn't going to just come out and say I was raped. But Milton Friedman didn't think he needed to come home. It was only when some older, wiser men said, "Hey, look, your wife's just been raped. You, you need to go home." Milton Friedman's inclination would have been to stay in India for months, considering his research. Uh, Milton Friedman retained cordial relations with his opponents, but friendship was rarely about the simple joy of companionship. Right for. Friedman, he had always blended ideological, professional, and personal ties. Well, we all tend to do this. So Arthur Burns' speech with his reference to cost-push inflation revealed a truth that was the most painful of all. Arthur Burns did not accept Milton Friedman's theory of inflation. And Milton Friedman had evaded the obvious. Burns was an institutional economist and a moderate Republican, but he was not a Friedmanite or Friedman-esque. The twos were poles apart on the most important economic issue of the time. And Friedman realized to his horror that their differences would soon be the subject of wide public discussion. And when the two finally connected over the phone, Arthur Burns was called. He didn't want to talk to Milton Friedman. So Milton Friedman felt betrayed. Arthur Burns felt betrayed. Arthur Burns was at the pinnacle of his career under the white hot lights of national fame. And his most trusted admirer and friend had only criticism to offer. It reminds me, something like 1997, on a Dennis Prager email list serve. I made a comment that I, I was getting tired of Dennis Prager just repeating the same tired topics, such as making fun of secondhand smoke and didn't seem to have anything new to say on his show. And uh, Dennis emailed me like first time he emailed me out of the blue saying that, you know, my comments had wounded him, that Dennis was, you know, out there fighting for his values, but he didn't want to get this kind of criticism from his friends and that I was wrong. His topics were more varied than I described. So you know, here's Dennis Prager at the pinnacle of his career, right? And one of his, you know, most, you know, trusted admirers, right, is uh, making on an email list of a criticism. And, and you know, Dennis was, you know, outraged. Like, it, it felt like the, the most, you know, deep, dark betrayal. And it, But for me, it had the opposite effects. Like, wow, if I can't even make, you know, a mild public criticism, uh, uh, that just the, the mildest public criticism of, of Dennis is going to jeopardize our friendship, um, I might as well go whole hog and do the writing on him that I long to do. 
So in midsummer 1973, Milton Friedman received a very pointed letter from a reader he did not know. So in live streaming and punditry in the world of gurus, particularly right-wing gurus, it seems to be all about relationships, right? People don't want to disturb important relationships or people who are in the same you know, basic political orientation as you, right? You don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to say anything critical, right? And uh, Milton Friedman tried to restrain his public criticism of Arthur Burns. And then Friedman received a pointed letter. You used to flagellate the Federal Reserve for its misdeeds, and you had good reason. But the reasons you have had since 1969 have been far more compelling. So that's when Arthur Burns took over the Federal Reserve. Yet for the most part, you have remained silent and diplomatic. The letter prompted a reckoning of sorts. Mia Culpa, Milton Friedman, pleaded in response. Arthur Burns is a revered former teacher of mine, one of my closest personal friends for 40 years, also a man for whose character and ability I have tremendous admiration. So Friedman had always worshipped and venerated Burns, continuing to treat him with deference even as his career transformed them into equals. But Arthur Burns perpetually regarded Friedman as some sort of overgrown undergraduate, which is pretty much how, how Dennis Prager regarded me. When he was asked about me in the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles in 2007, he said, oh, he was never a friend nor a student. I think at one time I might have you know, had some positive influence on his life, but I don't know, which is very different than what he used to tell people in 1991 92, 93 in letters that, oh, anyone who's a friend of Luke Ford's is a friend of mine. So I, I kind of grasp and identify with this sense of betrayal, both by Arthur Burns and by Milton Friedman. So even though they were really equals, Arthur Burns perpetually regarded Milton Friedman as some sort of overgrown undergraduate, not someone with whom meaningful ideas could alter his own. He may have even perversely resisted Milton Friedman's advice, his former student's advice, just to keep the hierarchy intact. Right? People like to keep hierarchies intact. If you're, if you're a fan, right, it's very hard to move from fan to anything else. So Dennis Prager met one of his closest friends, someone who became one of his closest friends, Dr. Stephen Marmer, when Dennis went to see Stephen Marmer for marriage therapy, I believe. And uh, Stephen Marmer said in his first session, look, I don't want to be your shrink. I'd rather be your friend. And so Marmer sent him to another therapist, and he became good friends with, with Prager. So why is it that uh, if our friendship becomes unbalanced, right, it, it often tends to dissolve? Because people identify with each other, and we tend to act collectively, right, because we have common beliefs, we have common goals, we have common concerns, and we have common enemies, Right? People who vote for a political party or cheer for a particular sports team or go to a particular church, right, do so because they identify with that team or, or party or, or church. So when I converted to Judaism, I, it was experienced by everyone I'd grown up with in Seventh-day Adventist Church as a great betrayal, and it just made absolutely no sense. It was as though I was flipping a middle finger to everything that they held sacred, and any, any possibility of continued friendship was dissolved. So we all naturally strive for these kind of larger identifications, right? It's just inherent in how we work. But identification with a team, a religion, a party always implies division because if people are not separated from one another, they would have no reason to seek identification. But people who do identify with certain groups or ideas or parties, they inevitably reject or disassociate themselves from other groups, other ideas, other parties. So in the United States, for example, identifying with the Republican Party means separating oneself from the Democratic Party. I converted to Orthodox Judaism. I separated myself from the Seventh-day Adventism that I grew up with. So our attitudes towards people and objects influence each other, right? And if we get out of balance, all right? So you have a person P, some other person O, and they both hold opinions about an object, idea, or event X, right? There's a, an imbalance here, right? These relationships go to hell. People feel a mental imbalance when they disagree with others whom they like or respect if they're disagreeing about something that they hold sacred. So people feel very strong cognitive, social, psychological pressure to agree with their friends' opinions. And so we tend to justify when, when our friends you know, think or speak or behave differently than from what we expect. We, we have you know, ways of trying to put our brain to sleep that uh, our friends are as significantly different from us as they really are. So we'll try to use rhetoric to overcome division. So it's inevitable that we will care about other people's opinions and attitudes if we care about those people, right? We tend to prefer agreement over disagreement. And when disagreement arises, we try to achieve symmetry and cognitive balance either by 
coming to some sort of agreement on the issue or by changing the way that we feel about each other. So sometimes people agree to disagree, but this is a very stressful state of equilibrium. It doesn't usually work. So this is balance theory. To understand balance theory and this co-orientation process, imagine two friends who like the same song, right? They experience cognitive balance because their orientation toward a common subject is the same. However, if one friend likes the song and then another grows to dislike it, each friend will experience a degree of cognitive imbalance and feel pressure to resolve the disagreement. That's why people argue and argue over the same things. They attempt to change one another's mind. If either friend is successful, balance will be restored. If not, the friends may change their opinion of each other. They may have less respect for the other's musical tastes. And the more serious the disagreement, the more strain it puts on a relationship. This is from terrific 2015 academic paper by Professor Joshua Bentley, Shifting Identification, a Theory of Apologies and Pseudo-Apologies. So when two people identify with each other, they can achieve cognitive balance by either identifying with or dissociating from a common object, another person, idea, and action. By contrast, when one person seeks to identify with an object and the other person seeks to disassociate from that object, these two people cannot identify with each other without creating imbalance, right? The tension they feel will steadily exert pressure on them to change their identification either with the object or with each other, right? They are thrown out of balance. Bellum, which is the leading human rights organization inside of Israel, all three of these uh, organizations have produced major reports that make it clear that Israel is an apartheid state, and they, in fact, use that language. And by the way, I follow the Israeli press very closely, and it's commonplace for Israeli elites to refer to Israel as an apartheid state. So this is the future that we're dealing with, and uh, it's not going to be pretty moving forward. I guess I'm just surprised that phrases like apartheid state, which are so specific to the South African uh, experience, in other scenarios, I, can, I could see you being critical of people sloppily applying phrases to other areas that don't correctly apply to them. You know, some of those organizations you listed are, are organizations that you might have been critical of in, in other scenarios. Do you, I'm, I'm surprised to hear how enthusiastically you embrace the rhetoric of Israel's critics in, in those terms. I don't like words like enthusiastically. I think you're sort of setting me up for the kill here. Uh, there's no reason that someone who is a realist like me can't also view the world in moral terms. Uh, and basically, one can argue, uh, as most realists do, that when there is a clash between realist logic and moral logic, realist logic dominates. But there are all sorts of cases uh, where the realist logic and the moral logic are lined up and they point in the same direction. And there are other cases where realist logic is not at play and you can make a moral case for doing something. And I want to emphasize that in the early 1990s, when the genocide took place in Rwanda, I fully supported American intervention for moral reasons. Uh, the Okay, so there there are times when John Mearsheimer has become morally outraged. I didn't know that he supported military American military intervention in Rwanda for moral reasons. I, I learned so much in this interview. Guys, John Mearsheimer contains multitudes. All right, he's not just a realist. He's not just this hard-headed realist. He has a strong moral dimension to his thought as well. All right, the bloke is complicated. He has hidden depths. Realist logic at play in that case. And I thought from a moral point of view, uh, the right thing to do was to intervene. So I think it's important to emphasize, because you're pushing me in the other direction, that realists can think about the world in moral terms. And there's nothing wrong with a realist like me assessing what's going on in Gaza from a moral perspective. And to take So just to save us on energy, we tend to put people in boxes. We tend to just assign them. So Mir Scheiber is like hard-headed realist that's interested in power politics. And it's so disorienting when we discover that they are so much, everyone is so much more complicated and so much less predictable than we thought. And that there's just so much unknowable about ourselves and other people. And so it, it's very easy to feel betrayed. Take this just one step further. You're basically saying I can't talk about Gaza without also talking about what happened uh, on October 7th or talking about other cases like the Russian case. And I don't accept that logic. This is not to say you couldn't do a comparative study, but there's no reason that I can't put my lenses uh, on uh, my analytical lens on uh, what's going on in Gaza and what the Israelis are doing. And there's no reason I can't assess it from a moral point of view. OK, so to apply similar kind of ideas to the U.S.-Israeli relationship then, because that's something you've written a whole book about. What's your sense of what US as the head of the West's vital interest is in Israel? Is it, do you feel like they are spending too much capital, treasure, reputation in defending Israel, and you'd like to see that reduced? Characterize that for us. The United States has a special relationship with Israel that has no parallel in modern history. Uh, the United States supports Israel 
almost no matter what it does. It, it's unconditional support. It's truly remarkable. And all sorts of people have said that there is no equivalent relationship between any two countries in, in recorded history. So the question is, what is driving this special relationship? What has caused it? And one could argue that it's in America's strategic interest. One could argue that it's in America's moral interest. From an ethical or moral point of view, it makes us it makes sense for us to provide uh, Israel with uh, unconditional support. And as Steve Walt and I argue in the book, you cannot make the argument that supporting Israel unconditionally is in our strategic. So Mir Shaiba later makes the point that you can't apply great power politics, realism, balance of power, realism to the Arab-Israeli conflict because he says Hamas is not a state. Now, I think you can make a strong argument that Hamas you know, runs a state or has run a state, the state of effectively Gaza has operated as an independent state. But uh, Mishai would say, no, Gaza is not an independent state, therefore great power politics don't apply. So what the hell happened in Israel on October 7th? Why was there such a massive... Enclave that is home to more than 2 million people. There's the Washington Post. The 40-mile-long barrier is outfitted with cutting-edge surveillance tools a deep underground concrete layer to block Hamas tunnels, and remote control machine guns above ground. After a billion dollar up. So this Hamas massacre would never have happened on the West Bank, right? It would never have happened to settlers, but the Israelis who lived beside Gaza were the most peace-loving, were, you know, the most uh, looking for, to get along with, with Palestinians, just tried to be kind and nice to them, weren't particularly well-armed, were not ornery, not particularly interested in their own defense, right? They just wanted to take refuge behind the fence. And I think a lot of people do this. They, they want to think that there's some fence that, that protects them. They, they don't want to take responsibility for their own security, right? They don't want to own a gun, right? They don't want to develop uh, emergency medical capabilities. They want to just trust their doctor, trust their dentist, trust their mechanic, right? They, they don't want to organize a neighborhood watch. They don't want to get uh, arms training. They don't want to get self-defense training. People just want to forget about as much of life as possible, except that which particularly interests them. And so there's Hamas and Gaza just right beside all these left-wing, liberal, peace-loving kibbutzniks, right? These, these socialists who are not particularly interested in maintaining any kind of self-defense. And as a result, they were just lambs for the slaughter, right? And so people want to check out of life, right? Life is so confusing, so demanding. It's so unpredictable, right? It, it's so much more dangerous than what we consciously allow ourselves to think about. And we want to check out, just like Israelis in, in southern Israel, these kibbutzniks who just wanted to imagine that they were protected by this fence. People just want these simple fences, this will protect us. But the best protection is to have people in your community who are trained to spot trouble so that you have a large proportion of your community who are prepared to, to be aware of what's left of bang. So bang is when the explosion and the bad things go off. You want to be left of bang before the bad things happen. And so the best defense for synagogues or churches or for communities is to have people with, with training in looking out for, for bad guys being aware of bad things happening because the world is an incredibly dangerous place. But we have this human tendency, oh, you know, the cost will take care of it. Let's just leave it for the professionals. We're behind a fence. I'll just listen to my doctor. I'll follow what my dentist says. But dentists are the probably the least ethical of all the major professions, all right? They, they routinely prescribe dental work that you don't need. Uh, de doctors for decades have prescribed expensive medical procedures that, that go against the science that go against studies that are, that are not good for you, but enhance their own status and their own income. Great in 2021, Israeli officials dubbed it the Iron Wall. We erected a wall of iron the terror organization. But in a matter in of minutes, Hamas was able to breach the fence in around 30 locations. The start. But that, that's just as true of our lives, right? You, you can't just pretend that the, the thin blue line of the police are going to be there. So we saw in last night's program about the Uvalde police response, that was more normal than abnormal for the police to fail to confront the shooter 
allow you know the, the victims just to, to bleed out because police will come along and collect the dead bodies, all right? They're not usually going to rush to a shooter to try to neutralize him. So if you want to be a responsible adult, you need to join something like a neighborhood watch. You need to become weapons trained. You need to learn to spot trouble, right? You need to up your skills and band together with other people to try to create a more coherent and safe society. All right, the best protection against inflation, against unemployment, against you know, psychiatric, psychological, social collapse, against earthquakes and floods and tornadoes. Right? The best protection is knowing your neighbors, having community, having friends, joining together and building things w- with your neighbors and developing skills such as you know, life-saving skills in self-defense, knowing how to use weapons appropriately, right? knowing how to you know, apply a tourniquet, all these things. Of what would become the deadliest single assault in Israel's history. Around 1,200 people were killed. 200- oh, name the stuff that doctors do to enhance their own income. Brah. Oh, tonsillectomies, right? Most tonsillectomies were known to be useless, and yet doctors prescribed them and did tens of thousands of them per year in the United States for decades after the evidence was overwhelming that tonsillectomies are not, not effective, not good bang for the buck. Uvorectomies, right? When, when you go in and remove a woman's uterus, right? As a result of that, women lead shorter lives. They have all sorts of negative side effects and considerably diminish sexual pleasure and sexual desire, right? The results of uvorectomies are quite bad, and yet doctors keep performing them because they can make money at them, even though they're really bad for you. SSRIs, right, at best have a placebo value. But they give doctors more power, status, prestige, and income, and they just prescribe them. So people who are struggling with normal and healthy human sadness because they've lost status, they've lost a friend, they've lost a marriage, they've lost opportunities, right? And so they normally naturally healthfully feel sad. They're now medicalized as being depressed and given SSRIs, which have horrible side effects, which shrink the white matter in your brain, right? Uh, at best, have a placebo level of, of help. So there are all sorts of areas where doctors prescribe things and carry out operations, all right? Most back pain, all right, is not going to be solved by going to a chiropractor. Chiropractic is just a complete scam. It's a scam that, that takes in hundreds of billions of dollars a year, and there's no evidence that it works, all right? So uh, a lot of unnecessary back surgery, spine surgery, if people would just learn the Alexander technique or some other techniques on how to properly take care of themselves. But doctors make bank. Oh, you want another example of doctors prescribing costly procedures that enhance their own income but are terrible for people? Sex change, right? Doctors promote sex changes to each other. You perform a sex change, you are guaranteed a long, ongoing profitable relationship with that person because they'll have to keep coming back again and again and again for more costly medical advice and medication and and procedures, right? So doctors perform mutilation of of children, of of adults to to aim to, to, you know, enable people to, you know, imagine that they can change their sex when your sex is in your chromosomes. You can't change your sex. All you can do is mutilate yourself. And doctors assist this because it's an incredibly good moneymaker. Because people, once they, they start that down that path towards a sex change or start having that mutilating surgery, they have to keep coming back again and again and again. It's a tremendous moneymaker. So there are all sorts of costly, unnecessary procedures that doctors and, and dentists in particular, virtually all chiropractors, uh, much of psychiatry push that it is not only indifferent to you, it's both bad for your pocketbook and bad for you. 140 taken hostage. The attack triggered a catastrophic war in Gaza. Didn't I promote COVID-19 vaccines? Yeah, taking a COVID-19 vaccine is a simple, inexpensive thing that you can do that will dramatically improve your health in many instances, and there's very little chance of a negative substantial side effect. So yeah, so some people get temporary inflation inflammation of the heart from taking the COVID vaccine, but far more people would get inflammation of the heart if they didn't take the vaccine and then had a more severe case of COVID. So you want to optimize your life? 
probably the single best thing you can do to optimize your life is to get vaccinated for COVID. It has killed thousands of Palestinians so far. Israel has vowed to destroy... Oh, what do dentists push? That's false. All right, root canals. All sorts of unnecessary root canals. All sorts of unnecessary surgical procedures. Terrific article in The Atlantic about the moral bankruptcy of much of the, the dental profession. Hamas, which has controlled the territory for years. Broadly, the fighters entered at 6.40 a.m. Uh-huh. And that's the same incident, just from the other side of the street. Exactly. Soon after the October 7th attack, the Washington Post began investigating how the so-called Iron Wall could have failed so spectacularly. Our team of reporters analysed hundreds of videos, photos and audio recordings from before, during and after the attack. With Frontline, we spoke with witnesses on the ground. We got hit with the first RPG. We examined maps and planning documents recovered from Hamas fighters. We took the visual evidence from October 7th and mapped it across southern Israel and inside the Gaza Strip, sometimes using the position of the sun to estimate when key events occurred. What we found was a fragile barrier that gave Israel a false sense of security, leaving it blind to its own vulnerabilities and to the meticulous plan taking shape on the other side of the fence. The attack began at dawn, around 6.15 a.m. Videos recovered from Hamas fighters show them setting off from Gaza and heading towards the fence, which has long been resented by Gazans who've been penned in by it. Yeah, you wanted to go do some raping and murdering and, and pillaging? All right, you too would resent a fence. Right, law-abiding, you know, artists, upright people don't tend to resent fences, right? Criminals and uh, people who want to get something for nothing, right? Subverters, they tend to resent fences. People along the road cheered them on. <laughs> Around 6.30, as fighters made their way to the fence... Hamas began firing a barrage of thousands of rockets at targets across the barrier. In just the first five minutes of the attack, there were red alerts for more than 30 communities near the Israeli side of the wall. In Kibbutz Erez, less than a mile from the barrier, Ben Sadan, a member of the community security, had just woken up for an early morning bike ride. <laughs> So over there we can see Gaza? There. Yeah. And the, the security fence, you yeah. can see it running along there, and there's the towers with the machine gun. Yeah. This, this is the border. Yeah. On the, on the left side, it's Gaza. On the right side, Yishuv Israeli. And I think... Some of the earliest rockets came over just around all here. All around, yeah. all around. From this hilltop, the next wave of Hamas's attack became visible. Reconnaissance fighters on paragliders soaring over the wall under cover from the rockets. Videos we obtained show them landing in communities inside Israel, the culmination of a plan that had been years in the making, and that, as we discovered, had been brewing in plain sight. When I first saw this video, I was like, oh, this is video from the day of. Like, how did they get this produced out so quickly? And then once you look closer, go, it's obviously a training video. Our investigation found multiple videos recorded by Hamas detailing their planning measures. Some were posted on social media before the attack, visible to all. We found videos of militants training for attacks on mock-ups of Israeli compounds. Videos posted soon after the attack showed they had also been practicing the use of paragliders. Hamas had also been expanding their training camps, activity that was visible in widely available online maps. But this evidence was largely ignored or dismissed by Israeli intelligence and the military, our investigation found. 
Michael Milstein is a former head of the Palestinian Department for Israel's military intelligence. He has been strongly critical of their missteps leading up to October 7th. Israel knew about, about the whole plans because, you know, Hamas didn't uh, hide them. It was on, on public, on their internet sites, on their TV, everywhere. From the operational tactic point of view, October the 7th, we, we, Israel, IDF didn't uh, uh, face any, any surprise over there. Were there specific warnings that something like this could be coming? Well, according to the reports in the Israeli media, there was a, a very focused uh, reports about the whole plan, the, ho the whole offensive plan that uh, promoted. And uh, actually, uh, the data, the reports itself were known, even to senior ranks, senior figures in IDF intelligence. But the basic assumption, the basic assessment in, uh, in the intelligence was that uh, those are only trainings or a, a, a theoretic, theoretic uh, uh, attempts. But th we are not speaking about something which is very uh, feasible. The heart of Hamas's operation on October 7th was the stage that their videos called the Blinding Plan, aimed at severing the connections to Israel's surveillance and security system. Israel uses seven Skystar surveillance balloons to monitor hotspots along the Gaza fence. The balloons carry a long-range 360-degree camera, but the model of camera that Israel uses on the balloons is relatively old and is no longer made. On the morning of October 7th, we found that three of the seven balloons were in need of maintenance and out of service. Video from the attack shows one of the remaining balloons. We were told it had been cut loose by the militants. The balloons are part of a system that includes surveillance and weapons towers. All right, this is a documentary from PBS uh, Frontline and the Washington Post. Let's get a little bit more here from Mearsheimer. Or in our moral interest. And in fact, what's going on here is that the Israel lobby, which is an extremely powerful interest group in the United States, uh, works over time to push American foreign policy in ways that support Israel at every turn. And as we emphasize in the book, there's nothing immoral or unethical or illegal about this. Interest groups hold enormous amounts of power in the United States. Uh, and the Israel lobby is an interest group that has an enormous amount of influence on our policy in the Middle East. To apply it to this, the last few weeks, the, the last months since October the 7th, can you not make the case that actually the US has been a restraining influence on Israel? They, they call it the bear hug, where because Israel is so reliant on US support and it is so forthright, at least it was initially in those early days, ever since the first few days after October the 7th, it feels like the US has been pulling Israel back, has been requiring them to allow humanitarian interventions. They've been pushing for pauses, delaying the incursion. You can make the case that the U.S. is the force in the whole world that is restraining Israel the most. I don't believe you could make that an argument. Uh, I, I mean, in minor ways, the Americans have, you know, pushed the Israelis to allow some aid to flow into Gaza, but not very much at all. Uh, there are all sorts of reports that basically a huge chunk of the population in Gaza is starving. Uh, and the idea that we have created a situation where the civilian population uh, is getting anywhere near a sufficient amount of food and water uh, and fuel is, and medicine is not a serious argument. The Israelis are doing pretty much what they want. And uh, there's no evidence that we've put meaningful limits on what they can do. So would you like to see the U.S. just more publicly critical? Would you like to see them stopping providing weapons, which might actually pose an existential threat to Israel? I mean, in, in the broader sense, how would you like the U.S. treatment of Israel to change? I would like us to treat Israel like a normal country. And when Israel does things that are in our interest, we should back them. And when they don't, uh, we should not back them. In fact, we should go to great lengths to get them to change their behavior. And I don't think it's in our interest for the Israelis to maintain the occupation. I hope you understand that since at least President Carter's time in office, the United States has pushed for... So over on uh, Kick, there's a wide open dialogue. All right. Uh, much... Many fewer speech restrictions over on my kick.com backslash Luke Ford page. And Corndog Champion says Israel is on stolen land. So he subscribes to the belief that somehow people just emerge out of a land and then the land is what just given to them by God, right? That The land doesn't belong to anyone, right? No land belongs to anyone. Land only belongs to those who can seize it and to those who can keep it. Uh, B'nai Brith has failed. Well, Jews have been fairly effective, right, at organizing in their self-interest. Now, in many ways, I think they've overstepped. In many ways, they've been 
uh, ineffective, but uh, overall to come back to a land 1,900 years later after you last had an independent state there and set up a new independent state and then develop the most powerful military in the Middle East, I think that's quite an accomplishment. What happened with the Balfour Declaration? Well, that was in 1917. What happened with the Balfour Declaration is that in a very effective, hardworking, industrious group, Jews right, used it and other things to regain land that they believed you know, historically belonged to them. The best protection, presumably, for a people is not to steal and occupy land. Well, if you don't have a nation state, you are incredibly vulnerable. So th- there's no stealing and occupying land, all right? No one, no one is uh, granted by the will of heaven certain land. All that there is is land that you are strong enough to seize and to keep, even against outside pressure. Condog uh, Champion says, you are an idiot. Well, who's the idiot? You're watching me. I'm not watching you. Your Laodicean Judaism is hilarious. Nothing more than another idiot boomer. Then why are you watching? And how do you know what, what my Judaism comprises? Forcefully for a uh, two-state solution. Every American president since Jimmy Carter, and including Jimmy Carter, has been in favor of a two-state solution. But the Israelis have not played ball with us. And the principal reason they've been able to get away uh, with largely ignoring our pressure is because of the Israel lobby here in the United States. Yeah, when people band together, organize together, uh, work hard together, and develop a coherent, cohesive strategy and put considerable resources behind it, they tend to be very effectively effective in life, all right? On the other hand, you could be like uh, like the, the, the cops at Uvalde, right? No discipline, right? No, no self-respect, no training, no leadership, all right? It was just a complete, complete mess at Uvalde. So you want the opposite of the Israel lobby? All right, this is the opposite of the Israel lobby. The classroom should be in session right now. The class should be in session, Mr. Right, the cops showed up. 77 minutes they waited before entering an unlocked classroom to confront the shooter. One of the cops ended up getting grazed. But they let teachers and children bleed out for 77 minutes. Right, this is not a coherent, cohesive, organized, disciplined, well-led response. So you want the opposite of the Israel lobby? It's the Uvalde response. Nice to your status. Right, um, this guy waited outside a classroom for an hour while his wife was inside with the shooter. He didn't go in. He was outside for an hour. No. He's in a classroom. Yeah, with kids. Fifteen minutes later. The officer, Ruben Ruiz, gets a call from his wife, Eva Morales. <laughs> Ruben, 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 Ruben. She says she's shot, Johnny. He wanted to get in there, and we're trying to hold him back. Yeah, his wife has been shot, and he stays outside for an hour after getting a phone call that his wife has been shot. And his, his fellow officers, they, they stay outside for an hour knowing that their fellow officer's wife is inside and is shot and is bleeding out, but they're afraid to go confront the shooter. They, they are absolutely bewildered by an unlocked door, just way too complicated to enter a classroom with an unlocked door. Back. You know, he's like, hey, Eva's in there. She's shot. She's shot. Like, we need to get in there, these kids. And we know we need to get in there, but we don't have the right equipment. We're waiting. We got a negotiator and we're waiting for more shields. You know, I didn't even bother throwing my rifle plates at all. Like I said, we didn't have any shields, no, no flashbangs, no nothing that we could use to create a distraction to not only, like, not sound selfish, but make sure we go home at the end of the day, but at least more of these kids can go home at the end of the day. You know? Yeah, they, they just sat out there for 70 minutes, all right, while the kids and the teachers were bleeding out. Just too bewildered to enter an unlocked classroom door. Now, I think these cops in general would have been much more effective 
and heroic if they've been properly led and properly trained. So these cops aren't the problem. These cops symbolize the problem of a lack of cohesion, a lack of training, a lack of excellence, a lack of leadership, right? These are problems widespread in our society. The, these cops just embody big problems in our country. You know, understand this is a job we signed up for. Yeah, we put our life on the line, but none- Right, these are their own Keth and Ken, all right? The people who speak similar language, same culture, you know, same religion, same nationality, right? Their own kids, their own spouses, their own community, and they don't go in for 77 minutes. None of us have never been in this type of situation. None of us ever thought any of the situation would ever happen here. Right. In their interviews, officers explained that one of the reasons they didn't try to go into the class was the lethal nature of the AR-15's ammunition, which can puncture body armor. He could just wait for me and just pop people at the door as they're coming in. He's going to take us out like butter. No, no equipment. No equipment to, to hold that, that type of round up. The gunman had dropped a backpack full of ammunition outside the school. I, I think that was kind of holding most of us back because of what we're hearing. We found out that that backpack had 30 plus magazines full of 223 rounds in there. So that kind of realized we, we weren't equipped to, to make entry into that room without several casualties. Well, eventually some of them got got together and did their job and yeah one person got grazed after 77 minutes and what uh, about 18 kids and teachers bled out and, and one, one cop got grazed and they went in and finally killed this guy I, going back now that kind of haunts me that if it was a pistol or something it would have been maybe a different thought process um, at that point we just we had no choice but just to wait and try to get no choice. No choice. All right. Just let the kids and the teachers bleed out. Your own wife. Just let your own wife bleed out. All right. You had no choice. Some Something that had better coverage where we could actually stand up to him. Um, at that point, we just secured the scene um, and just kept him contained into what we thought at that point was that one classroom. Wow. Great job there. Talk to you blogs later. Bye-bye.